0: everyone, it's Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show. Today, we're live, can you believe it, from Cross Border Solutions Quarterly Summit in beautiful Sarasota. That's right, we flew all the way down here to take advantage of the sand, the surf, and well, this conference room. Anyway, we have a great show for you today. Fiona, our transfer pricing AI genius, is here to help keep us honest about those hard-to-keep-track-of transfer pricing rules and regulations. That's right, benchmark requirements. I'm talking to you. Thanks for making the trip, Fiona. Well, like you said, Matt, this is my show. Hello, everyone. You can all say hello to Fiona. Hello, Fiona. (laughs) Right, a quick note about CPE credits. Uh, We're planting two code words in this podcast, and you'll have to know both of them, both of them, to receive CPE credits. Our special uh, live audience is already uh, ahead of this game. Uh, but So listen up and email both words to The Fiona Show, all one word, at crossbordersolutions.io, not .com, .io, and we'll send you your certificates uh, from there. Along with Fiona, we have another special guest with us today, Dr. Ednaldo Silva, an economist from the Washington, D.C. area, uh, has flown in to talk about hard-to-value intangible. Some people will do anything, I mean anything, for a free trip, but we really appreciate him being here today. Uh, More good news. Mimi Song, Cross Border Solutions Chief Economist, is here. In fact, in just a few moments, uh, she'll be taking over the mic and unpacking those hard-to-understand, I mean hard-to-value assets with Dr. Silva. Then later, uh, we'll put Dr. Silva in the hot seat for what we want to know, a rapid-fire stream of questions uh, from our listeners passed on uh, the Internet. Before we pass that baton, let's take a quick look at transfer pricing in the news. (laughs) Isn't that a fun little music theme for for our news? Like necklines, we prefer tax rates to plunge, and that's why we love Italy this week. The country plans to set its individual tax rates at 15 and 20 percent. Currently, they range from 23 to 43 percent. Plans for corporate tax rates should decline too from 24 to 20 percent. Now, about those necklines, who needs to submit country by country reports in Germany? Good question. You can find the answers in the Ministry of Finance's updated application decree on the general tax. Code issued in April and have fun with that, or you can give us a minute and we'll fill you in right here. Good choice. The short of it is you're a multinational company with a parent company in Germany and your consolidated financial statements for the previous financial year total 750 million euros or more. Sorry, you're on the hook for a CBC report. Now, if you're an entity residing in Germany with a parent in a jurisdiction that isn't required to file a CBC report, then yes, you'll have to file on behalf of your group as well. And if you're a German entity with a parent in a jurisdiction that is required to submit cbc reports to germany but routinely doesn't oops then yes you'll have to cough one up too that sounds like just about everybody matt i think you're right fiona i always am matt that's why i'm here She's a real sparkler. Anyway, uh, good news for Microsoft. After a long dispute with the Danish tax authorities in April, the Danish Supreme Court ruled in favor of the tech giant. The nutshell, Microsoft Denmark APS, a marketing entity, provided marketing services for software licensed by Microsoft Ireland Operations Limited. That all sounds pretty straightforward, right? Unfortunately, not to the Danish tax authorities. In fact, they argued that since the calculation for the Denmark-based company's commission didn't include revenues from the sales of get this products with pre-installed software. The taxable income should actually be higher. See why we're talking about hard to value intangibles today? The authorities also found fault with the company's transfer pricing documentation. It was late, and let's just say, according to the authorities, the arm's length principle wasn't exactly ironclad. Uh, The tax authorities made a discretionary assessment increasing the Danish entity's taxable income, and so began the legal circus. Uh, Both the Danish high court and then later the Danish Supreme Court sided with Microsoft, saying there was no legal basis for an assessment. As for those Danish companies' marketing efforts, the Supreme Court said yes, maybe they increased sales, maybe they didn't. After all, computer manufacturers like Dell marketed that pre-installed software as well. No doubt the outcome was a relief for the brainy computer geeks, now only if they were smart enough to submit foolproof transfer pricing documentation in the first place. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross border solutions AI driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. So, and if that is not a perfect segue into a discussion about hard-to-value intangibles, I don't know what is. Let's face it, hard-to-value intangibles confuse everyone, tax authorities, tax directors, tax court judges, and perhaps not-so-shocking podcast hosts like me, Dr. Inaldo Silva, however, isn't the least bit intimidated by hard-to-value intangibles, and given his wide breadth of experience, why would he be an economist with a Ph.D. from the University of California at Berkeley who helped draft transfer pricing regulations in Section 482 for the IRS and introduced what would become known as the Comparable Profits Method? Dr. Arnaldo Silva has done it all. He worked as Senior Vice President in the Tax Department at Wyeth Pharmaceuticals He's been a witness in several transfer pricing cases and now as the managing director of his own company, Royalty Stat, an economic consulting firm with an expertise in calculating arm's length royalty rates. He promises to take the hard out of hard to value intangibles. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Silva. Thank you. And now over to you, Mimi.
1: Thank you, Matthew. So before we get into talking about intangibles, really quickly... Uh, Dr. Silva, let's let's introduce. Let's get a little bit more information about you and and your background. So, can you tell our audience a little bit about your career trajectory? Just give us a little more flavor.
2: Yes. So, good morning, and thank you for inviting me to this event, and uh, thank you also for being a uh, client of Royalty Stats, uh, a database of uh, royalty rates. Um, I was an academic for, for ten years, I taught uh, economics at the graduate faculty of the New School for Social Research. Then uh, I saw a, by absence I saw a article at the Wall Street Journal that the IRS was looking for an economist who knew markup pricing. It so happened that I was given a course um, on markup pricing, so I applied and I was interviewed and I was engaged as a, as a consultant to look at a portfolio of uh, inbound distributors that uh, all had sustained losses. And in those days, under the 1968 uh, regulations, as you know, there was uh, three methods, uh, the CAP, uh, the, the Comparable and Controlled Price, and two methods based on gross profit. If you were an importer, it was a, a, you know, a resale price method. And if you were an exporter, it was a cost plus method. But the the, the plus was over COGS, cost of goods sold. So I discovered on my research that uh, transfer pricing uh, existed not only uh, through purchases and recorded and, and cost of goods sold. It also existed in operating expenses, primarily through management fees and uh, uh, royalty payments, outbound royalty payments, and also the deduction of uh, advertising expenses that was inconsistent with the function of the inbound distributor. And therefore, as a solution to this problem, I proposed a method based on um, operating profits, because then you solve transfer pricing violations, whether it belongs in COGS or in operating expenses. And that was my entrance and um, transfer pricing. Um, the economists at IRS were my worst uh, detractors. But then I, it came to the attention of national office. And uh, I was invited to become an employee of the Office of Chief Counsel in Washington DC. I was the first economist at the Office of Chief Counsel. And uh because the lawyers did not know what to do with me, they gave me three functions. <laughs> One was to you know to be a drafter of a of, of the transfer pricing regulations which was already underway yeah, and that was right. a full time job. I became also the first economist in the APA program, mm-hmm. which became the nursery school of the comparable profits method, which was this method that I had uh, introduced and they also gave me four trials to advise uh, what used to be called uh, district uh, special trial attorneys. So I really had my uh, my hands your full.
1: hands full absolutely. Yes. And then you know if for all those transfer pricing practitioners out there, I think the CPM method is eighty percent of the time now applied as the best method for almost all different types of intercompany transactions at this point. So you've clearly made your mark in transfer pricing, that's for sure. But not only have you been on the IRS side, you've also been on the in-house side. You've also worked at a law firm, but your background is not as an attorney or a legal background. What did you do at the law firm?
2: Well, at the law firm, I primarily did uh, uh, tax planning. Okay. And uh, at the law firm, I worked primarily with general counsel, that is to say with issues, what-if issues, that had not uh, yet come to the board and it was not part yet of the tax, uh, uh, tax department. I have been very careful, knowing that uh, transfer pricing requires three kinds of expertise. It requires a special kind of accounting, which is knowledge of uh, financial uh, statements, uh, Mm-hmm. Primarily, income statement and balance sheet, we don't really go to the cash flow statement. Uh, tax law and, of course, uh, economics. So I am very careful to not to trespass, and even though I have been working with lawyers or for lawyers since 1988 and also for accountants, I'm, I'm very uh, circumspect uh, of, uh, of boundaries.
1: So, so you stay in your lane as an economist, right? Yes, I do. <laughs> right. So, out of all those different experiences, what what do you think was your favorite experience? Did you like being with the IRS? Did you like being, you know, on the tax planning side, or or really as an in-house partner and collaborator?
2: Well, by far, my favorite job was working for the Office of Chief Counsel. Okay. I, I should distinguish that uh, I worked for for the IRS for maybe fifteen months. Mm-hmm. And I did not like that experience because I recognized that the administration has a disdain for public servants or, or public employees. The offices are shabby, the equipment are third rate, there is no library, you know, so it is a, a pervasive uh, under, underachievement. But when I went to the Office of Chief Counsel, uh, I thought that uh, first of all, the variance among employees in terms of variance of knowledge was very small. Mm. Um, the level the caliber of the uh, of the officers uh, was extremely high, so I felt uh, I felt at home and uh, Then I had this splendid uh, instruction. Splendid in the sense that, uh, as you know in academics, uh, we are driven by what we call intellectual honesty. So I was given this instruction that uh, we do not give you the answer. There is no right answer. We want an answer that is defensible, because we cannot afford to be embarrassed. So that was uh, really a very nice uh, environment to work with.
1: That's that's fascinating. I think what's interesting too about your position, you you have been quoted saying people in transfer pricing are very sanctimonious about arm's length. What did you mean by that comment?
2: Yes. um, I think that I said people are sanctimonious about arm's length defined as Mm -hmm. uh, comparable transactions. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, when we were drafting the regulations, there were two paradigms, two rival paradigms. One was this concept of uh, arm's length defined in terms of comparable transactions. And the other one was uh, formulary apportionment. Mm -hmm. There is, of course, another paradigm, which is uh, limited deductions, limited related party deductions. And there is a fourth one, which is a special case of limited deduction, which is to add back back, uh, provisions. So I believe that uh, arm's length defined, in terms of of comparable standards, is the most difficult uh, paradigm to to implement. Difficult for the government, for the tax authorities, and difficult for, for the government. And I have been saying that arm's length is an axiom. It is poor definition so we define it any way we want. I also say that people are sanctimonious because when I came to transfer pricing having no knowledge of transfer pricing, everyone, meaning uh, the IRS and the the taxpayers, were using what was called industry norms. Mm -hmm. They were using industry statistics. So I was the one who introduced uh, CompuStat to company financials and transfer pricing. Subsequently, I learned that uh, that company financials was used in uh, DuPont, mm-hmm. uh, where the berry ratio and the what became the ballroom were introduced as fourth methods, uh, like the profit split. So people are us because we spend a lot of efforts. We create a lot of controversy over what is a comparable when uh, the provisions for comparability are so dense, you know, that anyone can be impeached.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think it's a fascinating viewpoint, though. People, there could be people out there who would definitely argue that a formulary apportionment would not really be considered arm's length, right? So that, that's differing viewpoints, and it's almost the definition of arm's length in fact here is, is what you're challenging in a lot of ways that people are, are defining it in different ways. so one last question about your background. I mean, you started royalty stat right and yes. this was how far back does that go, and, and why did you do that? Yes what was the motivation
2: so um, when um, I started at IRS, I was invited in 1988 to to a meeting in Washington, D.C., in which the what became known as a white paper was introduced. The, the white paper was a, an instruction uh, given to Treasury and to the IRS uh, from the Tax Reform Act of 1986 to do a comprehensive analysis of transfer pricing and to provide uh, policy recommendations. It's really a wonderful uh, document to review because it's very well uh, researched. So there is a uh, well-known or, or famous Appendix D, and Appendix D uh, contemplates uh, finding comparables to, to, to measure uh, the transfer of intangibles, and they went through the, the authors went through the Securities and Exchange Commission, analyzed something like 500, do not quote me on the numbers, but <laughs> okay. something like 500 uh, license agreements, and uh, came to a conclusion that uh, comparable uh, licenses could be found to price intangibles to deviate from what was then the ruling paradigms which were 12 factors, mm-hmm. if comparables could not found on the dash, uh, 142 dash, I think, uh, 2D, small d. So when I reviewed that document uh, you know, going home, I got a copy, and I thought I could do it better. Hmm. Because as an economist, I, um, I was not satisfied with textual evidence. I wanted numerical evidence. Right. And when I subsequently became a drafter of the, of the regulations, I thought that, you know, um, you know, here goes my vanity. I thought that the comparable profits method was going to be the controversial uh, element in the in the discussion and it came through very fast. Mm-hmm. Everyone accepted. So the issue was how to draft it. But what was really controversial was the what became known as dash four uh, uh, regarding the transfer of uh, of intangibles. And we created an example on the dash four in which there are ten or twelve license agreements from the SEC that comes exactly from the white paper. Uh, but we do have royalty rates from which we take uh, a range of uh, of what we consider to be arm's length. So I decided that I was going to create a database. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when I went, but of course, being a government employee, they did not have the resources. And when Sherman and Sterling came and offered me a job, uh, which had tripled my government salary, I did with the intention of uh, raising enough funds to create a database. And I did create it in 1996, uh, but it came, uh, it came live in 1999.
1: Oh, wow. Three years to get the database up and running.
2: Yeah.
1: So I think that's a very good segue into the main topic at hand, which is hard-to-value intangibles. So what is it that separates intangibles from hard-to-value intangibles?
2: Yes. Well, according to the to the OECD, especially the revised, uh, chapter six, it was revised uh, in July of, uh, I think, 2017. Uh, hard to value uh, intangibles are distinguished by two characteristics. One is that comparables cannot be found.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, that is a, uh, a statement made by by the OECD, which I f- think is irresponsible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it's a statement of fact without any support, without any verification. So it's irresponsible for an entity that provides guidance with ambition to be global guidance, not only for its uh, members, but also for non-members. Makes a, stadium, a statement of fact without evidence, without providing evidence. So that is the first distinguishing feature, which I, I, I raise uh, an important question You know that uh, if it's empirical, it's subject to test. Uh, The second uh, characteristic is that uh, hard-to-value intangibles are hard because you can't predict uh, the future uh, stream of uh, net revenue or or benefits with certainty. And I think there is naivety in this expression because you can't predict anything with certainty. So there is nothing really distinct about hard-to-value intangibles with respect to to future prediction or certainty. And also, I think what is uh, implied in this condition is a prejudice. And the prejudice is that the method, or the implied method, to value intangibles is through discounted uh, present value, and I believe and we can discuss it further. I believe that this is the most, the most undesirable method that we can employ to uh, to value intangible, because it's a method that leads to many uh, controversies, and we can go so, so certain, like Amazon, uh, and uh, uh, you know, to to reveal. The source of of controversies using that
1: method, because mm-hmm, there's definitely a lot of assumptions that are applied in applying sort of a discount cash flow model, and yes. and there was a lot of controversy even from uh, the the different tax authorities, like the IRS, came coming out with new me- ma- new methods, like the income method, right, versus yes. the acquisition price method, because the this area of intangibles and valuation. Was clearly an area that was being challenged. There's no one right answer,
2: right? Well, Medtronic is a case in which uh, reveals that if you have ambition to use the discounted, uh, or the income method, you know, discounted cash flow method, you went dire straight.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. And. Uh, you know that it's like the Veritas method, uh, the Veritas case as well, right? So yes. not only metronics, but Veritas. There's so many different cases that were brought to court, but what happened as an outcome? The IRS challenged them, and they and and, and the taxpayer won.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: Right. It's it's it's. It's not a clear-cut answer, even though the tax authority might prov- be providing a certain level of guidance to tell the taxpayer this is the approach you should use. I think in that case, though, they were trying to apply it retroactively.
2: Right? Well, those cases are interesting because uh, in the Office of Chief Counsel, I got the idea, which I thought was quite clear, that uh, the, the parties involved in the controversy, meaning the tax authority and the, and the taxpayer, Uh, have two burdens of proof. First, the burden of proof belongs to the taxpayer. Mm -hmm. But in fact, in in a trial, the burden of proof, in fact, not the juris, uh, shifts to the government. And there are two burdens of proof. The first burden of proof is for the taxpayer to show that the presumption of tax evasion is arbitrary, capricious, and unreasonable. So the taxpayer has to to demonstrate to the court, or in appeals, that the adjustment proposed by the government is uh, unreasonable, does not follow the arm's length principle. And let's suppose that the taxpayer survives or prevails on that uh, claim. There is a second burden, Mm -hmm. which is to determine what the arm's length amount is. Uh, my reading of recent cases, uh, as you have mentioned, Medtronic, Veritas, Amazon, is that the court has relinquished the second burden so that once the taxpayer shows that the position of the IRS in those cases uh, was arbitrary, unreasonable and capricious, and there are three adjectives that we need to pay attention, the taxpayer's position prevailed. Mm-hmm. And uh, that I thought it was a uh, abuse of discretion, on the part of the court.
1: Right, right. So, but coming back to this idea of hard to value intangibles, I think we've, you you had an article written where you basically challenged that that notion in on the surface that hard to value intangibles, it's not so hard to value at all. So tell me a little bit about why your perspective is that it it's not hard to value. Yes.
2: Well. Uh, First, uh, uh, economists know about pricing for a long time. You know, we have been researching about uh, pricing mechanisms. You know, prior to Adam Smith, uh, it's in 1818 with David Ricardo uh, that the pricing equation gets very well defined in terms of what are the factors, what are the unknowns it Gets very well defined. So. Uh, the question becomes, what sets uh, intangible assets from other sets that makes it so difficult for us to, to establish uh, value? And I have already said that th- there are these two characteristics that the OECD has uh, claimed that makes it difficult uh, t- uh, to value. When we go back to the ta- Tax Reform Act of 1986 and the instruction to produce a comprehensive study of transfer pricing, that is already a recognition that uh, what they call high-profit intangibles, for which they were so unique that uh, they required a special uh, treatment, and the treatment was unknown, and we came, we came up with the, the cut method and with the profit uh, profits uh, uh, you, you split uh, method. Now. I believe that this concept that is hard to value is a misconception and principle, because there are three ways in which we value any asset. And there is this presumption that uh, intangibles uh, are special kinds of asset because they produce high profits. But there are only a few types of uh, intangibles that produce high profits because they lead to market concentration. And it's the market concentration that leads uh, to high profits. So, so the, what are the three methods? Uh, one method, which for reasons that are unknown to me uh, has been relegated, is a method of pricing based on past events.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, uh, and this is very well delineated by Ricardo and uh, by Hewell, who was a mathematician at uh, Cambridge who commented. Uh, on Ricardo's work. And it was called dated quantities of labor. So, and the economists today calls uh, invent, uh, perpetual inventory method. So if you have an intangible, and you, you uh, uh, allocate the expenses attributed to that intangible, so at any given moment, you know, before launching, the price of that intangible is the dated quantities of expenses. I mean, the, the accumulated amount of expenses. And if you go to section 42-4 that provides for the transfer of intangibles, we have several examples dealing uh, with commensurate with income provision in which we are measuring uh, potential uh, or profit potential. And the profit potential is measured by the accumulated amount of expenses uh, to produce that intangible. So one method. Uh, is to uh, price it based, and in, in, in one of my blogs in royaltystat.com that is, I specify the mathematics uh, uh, of the formula to calculate the value of intangible using, uh, using the past, uh, mm-hmm. the past expenses. This, uh, so the OECD and the U.S. regulations completely disregard uh, that method. And there is no economic rationale for that. Uh, it's simply ignorance that leads one to lack of memory, uh, that leads one to make that uh, terrible omission. Then there is a second method, which is the present. And that is you, you find uh, asset purchase agreements uh, and find the terms, and you you, you you find the price in that way. That is very difficult. Because you, don't, you, you have a lot of asset uh, uh, transfer agreements uh, pro, uh, produced by the SEC, but they are very few dealing exclusively with intangibles. So that method is not promising. And then there is a third method, which is based on projections. Mm-hmm. And that is the favorite uh, method of the OECD and the US, especially when you go to the cost sharing Cost-sharing regulations, and uh, as I have indicated before, of course, it needs elaboration. It's the most perilous, you know, the, uh, method. It's not a method that economists are enamoured with, because it leads to because the response, the result, is so uncertain. Even if you can. Uh, project benefits, let's say operating profit into the future, with confidence, which cannot be done, because we know that as the future horizon expands, the error around your projection uh, expands like a megaphone. I mean the error uh, of uncertainty gets uh, very large. And if you can ascertain with confidence the second term, which is the lifespan, you know, the mortality of the intangible, you still have a third problem, which is the determination of the discount factor. Sure. And, uh, and what happens is that the sensitivity of the value to small changes in the discount factor is dramatic. It leads to a lot of error. And that was the problem that the IRS had. One of the problems that the IRS had in the cases that we have cited, and the judge became uh, irritated, <laughs> impatient, with the fact that the IRS uh, did, the economists did not do the what-if with, uh, with the discount rate. And what is happening is that everyone is using the capital asset pricing method to value intangible, and uh, this is conceptually flawed. You know, so it is a method full of problems, um, and my issue is that we should, we should go to the past, we should track the expenses of these intangibles, and you find the values are not so a hard of value, and they are not so inflammatory as everyone uh, thinks uh, they are.
1: Well, what's what's interesting about that is if you are trying to anticipate future cash flows or or predict the future profitability of an intangible, wouldn't most companies rely on historical empirical evidence to, in fact, do the future projections, right? Yes. So I think Your first approach, looking at historical numbers and the third approach, perhaps the idea here is the best of both worlds, that those two need to converge in some way or or shape. And perhaps that's going to result in a, a better way to value intangibles, right?
0: Well, oh, uh, actually, before we we move on to that answer, I don't mean to cut you off, Dr. Silva. Uh, forgive me, uh, but we do need to give our CPE code word uh, for those listening at home, also in this room. Uh, the CPE code word is "dumb waiter," and again, that is "dumb waiter" for the CPE code word. Back to you, uh, Dr. Silva.
2: Well, I agree with uh, the position that you have taken. What uh, and what underlies? my statements about transfer, transfer pricing is the need to have flexibility. Uh, reality is very complex. And you cannot provide solutions to a complex situation that a straight jacket uh, solution. So, you know, I mean, if you come and say, well, we should look at the past and you look at the future, as a matter of, of principle, I agree with the approach. What I don't like is inflexibility. So, for example, when I go back and I say, arm's length is an axiom. We can define any way we want to correspond to the reality that we want to measure. That's the flexibility that I wanted to, uh, you know, to, to introduce into the, uh, into the field.
1: And what would you say to people who would argue otherwise to say, well, formulary apportionment is clearly not arm's length?
2: Well, first of all, I'm not advocating uh, any particular method, right. I'm not even That's advocating right. the, the, the universality of the comparable profits method which is my brainchild. What I want is, uh, is flexibility, what I want is diversity, is the, the conceptual admission, you know, that there are many ways of slicing this bread and that uh, it is not a group of attorneys you know, with uh, with some economic advice, uh, that is, you know, uh, sitting at the OECD, with the U.S. Treasury, with the Office of Chief Counsel, that is going to delineate, you know, this dynamic, this fluid uh, problems that we have uh, with respect to 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 transfer pricing. So, my call is for is for uh, flexi- flexibility. You know, it's uh, let all flowers bloom.
1: Right. So, for our audience here, I mean, the categories of hard-to-value intangibles. What, what, what would be categorized in there? What are some of the types of hard-to-value intangibles that that companies are facing? Just to, to cite a few.
2: Yes. So, let me take this opportunity to to say to you that one of the most challenging elements of of discussing intangibles under trust pricing is that the definition is unacceptable. Mm, yep. yeah? So we begin the problem with a definition that is ill uh, treated ill defined the concept of uh, intangible. First of all it is metaphysical. You know I'm a scientist I come after the you know the enlightenment anything that smells of non-physicality non-materiality is suspicious to me. You know they say it's a property that is invisible, that cannot be perceived, it's metaphysical. So I, I'm inherently against it. Then it's defined in terms of a list of items. And uh, as you know, there are two groups, one that wants the list to be short, uh, and then there is another group that wants the list to be uh, to be large, and this group is prevailing. For example, to include things like workforce in place. Yes. yes. So we have a list. And uh, then we have this affirmation which is interesting but vague that uh, intangibles are you know uh, properties that uh, have substantial value independent of the service of individuals and i wonder if this characteristic pertains only to intangibles or to other types of uh, of assets so it is a laundry list and says it other items like what you find in the list. So it's very difficult to deal with a problem when the problem is, is ill-defined, when the diagnosis of the problem is not uh, uh, not well uh, specified. So then you have this claim, which is uh, imbued, it's incorporated, and the concept of intangible, that intangible is a special asset because it produces excess profits. Now, if it's an analytical concept, I would like to see such a formulation. If it's an empirical con- uh, concept, I would like to measure it, and I would like to know if, if this result, meaning that intangibles necessarily produce excess profits, uh, is time insensitive. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter if it's 10 years ago, or 20 years ago, and if it's space sensitive. It doesn't matter if you're in Germany, if you're in the US, if you're in Japan. If you're in China, if you're in Brazil, so we have a series of uh, of. To me, it's a hypothesis, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's a hypothesis to be tested uh, case by case, given facts of uh, and and uh, and circumstances. I mean, in economics, we know for a long time, you know, since the work of uh, of Bain in the mid '50s, that uh, uh, you know that if you if you pick an industry. And you stabilize the definition of how you measure profit, and you scale it properly. And he thought profit over assets or profit over revenue were two two scales. I don't like profit over assets. Uh, so you, if you stabilize the definition and you look at it over time to stabilize the number, um, then what you find is that uh, there is a variation of profitability in the industry. And when you try to explain the diversions between the high profits and the, you know, the mid, mm-hmm. when you try to explain the premium, the attribution given was to concentration, market concentration. Are you in a logopoly, and in industry Were you in a competitive environment? Mm-hmm. And we know this since 19, or 1838 with the, with the uh, work done uh, in France, that, uh, with the theory of oligopoly that that premium prices were uh, a function of the number of uh, participants in, uh, in, in, in the industry.
1: That's like Economics 101, right? <laughs> yes,
2: I mean, it's part of uh, the textbook of no economics. No
1: competition, you can, yes, yes. You, know, you can achieve higher profits and yes, yes. returns,
2: yeah. So, so I think that, I mean, you look at my company, Royalty Stat, I mean, Royalty Stat is purely uh, an intangible uh, entity, but we don't make excess profits. And why? Because we don't have market concentration. So I think that that is, and in fact, in one of the interviews from which you took the quote about the you know, hard to value intangible is not, so, it's not so, so hard, I make the point that there is something in between, between intangibles and high profits. And the between is the market concentration.
0: Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash TPU.
1: Interesting. So, I mean, in my viewpoint, I would have... In some ways, I almost think of intangibles as a catch-all bucket, right? And now you're bifurcating with market concentration, too, because some people might argue market concentration is also perhaps a, not a tangible item per se, right? But uh, but clearly it has an impact. I You know, when I think about intangibles as a catch-all, I think about it also in the context of um, financial statements. When When a company acquires another company, and pays a value for it, right, some acquisition price, you break that down through a purchase price allocation, and everything you assign a value to right your assets you can assign a value to that, and you know the, the people and um, so you assign a value, and then there 's the catch all, which is goodwill, right mm-hmm. so in my mind, sometimes I think intangibles is like a catch all goodwill is the accounting catch all and you know in, in fact. Goodwill could be attributed to various intangible property because that's the premium that a company is willing to pay to acquire another company. Right?
2: But see, this is what's interesting: is that the intangible that you are describing, mm-hmm. uh, which is a premium price over the uh, of the fair market value, that you put in the balance sheet of the acquirer. Yes, and you have to allocate through the purchase price allocation of what is. Amortizable intangible and what is uh, is goodwill, but that is not the intangible that we uh, that we discuss in transfer pricing because the intangible that you discuss in transfer pricing are not recorded in the balance sheet. They are self-developed intangibles, and and what is uh, you know all of you who who know accounting uh, know that there is this distinction between what is expensed and what is capitalized. And what is capitalized becomes the basis of of the intangible. But there is so much accounting latitude that a lot of the production of intangible is actually expensed. And therefore, you don't have a basis in the the balance sheet. So you have this self-developed intangible for which, for example, an entity that's a high-tech entity, whether it's in software or biomedical devices or, or pharmaceutical, uh, telecom, etc., uh, produces a lot of uh, of expenses uh, through R&D, but the, and you expense the big, you know, supposedly you expense the, the R and you capitalize the D, but it's not always uh, happens. So you have a lot of r and D, a a lot of advertising expenses, and they create these two types of intangibles that the OECD calls the trading tangibles, resulting from R&D. And the marketing tends devoted from the advertising and promotion, but those assets are not recorded anywhere on the on the balance sheet of uh, of the economy uh, of the company. And perhaps that is why the drafters of uh, transfer pricing regulations call call these assets invisible mm-hmm. or or give or give them uh, a, a metaphysical attribution.
1: Right. Right. So, and in the news right now, we, we hear a lot of high-profile cases where, we, like Amazon, Facebook, Coca-Cola, Microsoft, um, and, and all of these cases are, are surrounded around intangibles and the value of intangibles. I, I, just a general question, I mean, clearly the transfer pricing landscape has evolved over the years. Do you think that there's more of a focus on intangibles these days and perhaps are intangibles really the way that tax authorities are going to be able to assess these bigger adjustments? Is that what they're trying to do and target?
2: Yes, I think so, but uh, this focus is of long standing. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you go back to the issues of 936H uh, with Puerto Rico, the, you know, in which the IRS had the theory that the Puerto Rican entities were contract manufacturers and did not, uh, should not benefit uh, from the ownership of the uh, trade intangible, the production intangible, the court never agreed with that uh, conceptualization and and uh, the court 's view was that uh, the Puerto Rican entities were manufacturers but also had uh, through the uh, intercompany transfer access to the benefits of the trade intangibles and uh, the the u s entities uh, had the distribution function the r and d function which was treated the service but it had the marketing intangibles, and therefore the court introduced this profit split to divide the benefits between the trading intangibles and the uh, marketing intangibles. So it's of long standing. What has happened over time is that the transfer of tangible goods has, for all practical purposes, been subject to safe harbors, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if you are a manufacturer uh, or if you are a distributor, Engage in intercompany transactions. I mean, the if you use either return on assets or a profit margin, you know what what the bandwidth is. So it's it's. I mean, we go through this you know, this game of finding comparables, but they really sh- should be subject to safe harbors. So what is subject to you know to comparability analysis and controversy? Intangibles. I think intangibles and also I would I would say. You know, it's not a prediction, but certainly something that's below transfer pricing, which is thin capitalization. Mm-hmm. You know, so things related to below uh, the determination of operating profit, you know, with uh, thin capitalization rules, you know, with uh, excess debt, excess uh, uh, interest deduction. So I would say it's in finance uh, and and intangibles. And here, uh, let me say something about intangibles, which is really curious. When you go through uh, the distinction between the 1968 regulations and the 1994 regulations, yes, that is a comparable profits method, methods based on operating profit, you know, both the CPM and the, the profit split. But what is really crucial with respect to intangibles is commensurate with income. Is right. this recognition that uh, intangible, as an asset, is dynamic, it has time. So we have to take time either backwards, as I, as I was discussing, or into the future, you know, as uh, f- favored by the OECD and, and, and the IRS. And because there is so much uncertainty, if you go into the future, we have the periodic adjustment rule that compels the taxpayer and the government to evaluate the difference between actual and projected for five years, each or five years. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is what is is interesting. But when you look at uh, the audit trail and you look at court cases, no one makes reference in substance about commensurate with income. So you see, for example, people calling cuts or, uh, or comparable and controlled transactions without demonstrating profit potential, mm-hmm. without uh, uh, making reference. To, uh, to commensurate with uh, with income. And, and this, I think, this lapse exists on a part of IRS administration. It exists on a part of, uh, of taxpayers. It, and it's, uh, the court is also omissive. I mean, on this, I think it was, uh, what was the case that was sent back? Was it Amazon? And which one of the judges said, how about commensurate with income? I mean, it was not even, uh, it was not... Uh, even discussed uh, by, the, by the court.
1: Right, right. Well, you know, we, we're probably out of time here, um, at least for the main topic. Uh, but, you know, from a last question perspective, Dr. Silva, what advice do you have to multinationals who are dealing with, I will call them intangibles, no longer hard to value?
2: <laughs> well, um, uh, economists like to say that there is no such thing as a free lunch. Yeah. <laughs> so there is not, no such thing as free advice. I, you know, but joking aside, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, joking aside, one of the primary problems in transfer pricing, and I'm saying this from experience, both in working for tax authorities and working for, for taxpayers, is this uh, presumption that the taxpayers are hiding the ball, mm. they are hiding facts. Right. And uh, so if I have an advice, it is that A, keep records, and B, disclose the records. Because when you are engaged in an audit, and this is frustrating for me as an economist working for the taxpayer, in which I cannot trace uh, the, you know, the facts, you know, because you know, and I, I recognize that the tax department doesn't always have, have the facts, but it has a responsibility because of 6662 to track uh, these facts. You have to produce these facts because if you don't produce, you're always working under the penumbra, you know, this shade that, you know, that you are engaged in shady dealings. Right. And uh, you can't be trusted. And I think that in a discourse, whether it is your relationship between you know, your spouse or your children, trust is important. And likewise applies to, when you go abroad, to the relationship between the tax authority and the company. So I think that it's important for you to track, you know, for, if it's intangible, to track the expense attributed to the, uh, to, to the intangible and to disclose the information to the taxpayer, and to to, to the tax authority, and to help the tax authority. Because one of the things that really frustrated me when I was at the IRS was that they use what they call the shotgun approach. (laughs) You know, they don't know what you have, so I'm going to shoot pellets everywhere. So you have IDRs dealing with many things, and then the taxpayer you know, provides to use the inelegant expression, a truckload of information, which the IRS doesn't have the competence to to analyze. So I was extremely displeased with this approach because I always believe that whenever you take a problem, you have to think of it as an architect. You know, we're not spiders, you know, that we span our webs without thinking. We always have to have a preconception to have an idea of the problem we're trying to solve. So I always wanted to ask questions that pertain to my model. So I, you know, I, you know, as an architect, I have to okay the problem. So these are the facts that I wanted to to review, and after I review these facts, I draw my conclusion. So I think that taxpayers can help the tax authority can bring discipline to the audit by being less shady, right. By being less obtuse, and by also guiding the the tax auditor to what the issues. Are important, you know, and and sure. and that transaction instead of giving this, I don't know, you know, uh, playing with uh, giving the facts and giving more credence, you know, to this uh, uh, to this unacceptable behavior of, uh, you know, shooting pellets and and hope that you you hit the target.
1: Right, right. Well, that, that actually reminds me of a quote I heard once that basically talked about transfer pricing, and. As a multinational, it doesn't matter if you're actually doing the right thing. It's the perception from the tax authority that you are doing the right thing.
0: Thank you so much, Mimi, and thank you, Dr. Silva. Uh, That was very enlightening. Uh, So, Fiona, what do you think? Did Dr. Silva make hard-to-value intangibles easier to understand? Well, certainly for me, Matt. But then I'm, well, brilliant. I couldn't agree more, Fiona. I have our second CPE code word for you. That word is gazpacho. Again, that word is gazpacho. Uh, now it's time for my favorite part of the show, What We Want to Know. Dr. Silva will take the hot seat for a few rapid-fire questions from our listeners. If there was one thing you wish you knew when you started in transfer pricing that you know now, what would that be?
2: Knowledge of uh, financial statements and accounting footnotes.
0: Yeah, and, and that going back to you know, the beginning part of your uh, career, how, how do you think that, that would have helped you?
2: Well, it will help because... Uh, you know I had an idea initially that uh, you know that accounting footnotes uh, or accountants uh, or gap rules were more strict than they are, and uh, there is a lot of uh, and accountants have latitudes the lasso is so wide that it is very difficult to determine accounting uh, uh, items, for example. Mm. Uh, you look at operating profit uh, sometimes they dis- they say it 's after depreciation sometimes it 's before depreciation. sometimes you have included in depreciation uh, items that are really extraordinary items they are not recurring uh, 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 expenses you know so it takes a long time to go into the schedules of uh, of goods sold and to go into the schedules of total deductions to uh, to understand that uh, this latitude that accountants have produce a lot of unreliable measures of of operating profit, and uh, that I learned by doing, and I wish that I had known mm. uh, this kind of uh, of information I see for example. I was last week uh, involved in a case in which, um, when I looked at the depreciation, there was a very big jump from one year to the next, but I didn't see the jump in revenue. I didn't see the jump in assets. And, you know, when I went pursuing, you had the impairment, over $1 billion in impairment, treated as depreciation. And I'm not an accountant, but as an economist. I would say that is a special, non-recurring event, mm. so I would take it out of uh, depreciation bef- uh, before uh, computing operating profit after depreciation. So this kind of knowledge uh, is not taught; uh, you you learn by doing. I think accountants have the uh, the best resources to you know to decipher these uh, items and produce a reliable measure of. Um, Uh, revenue, a reliable measure of operating profit, either before or after depreciation, and a reliable measure of uh, operating assets. The economist cannot do it. I believe the lawyer cannot do it. So we are very reliant on accounting knowledge to have a... It's a factual determination to have the facts straight.
0: As has been uh, the theme uh, for for much of our discussion, uh, just in speaking of, of being able to uh, imagine, uh, you know, the future or, or be able to, you know, see the future coming. Uh, where do you see this industry in five years?
2: Well, I think we are going to move uh, more and more into safe harbors. I think that uh, <clears throat> it is time that uh, uh, tax authorities recognize that. Uh, we have so many potential comparables for manufacturing activities, so many co- uh, comparables for distribution uh, activities, and uh, we know what the range of uh, long-term profits, uh, normal profits uh, are. So I think that we are going to move towards uh, towards safe harbors, uh, limits and deduction. We already see this. And the OECD guidance uh, with respect to thin capitalization rules, where we are moving towards uh, the concept of compatibility to the concept of uh, limits. You know, uh, you cannot deduct interest expense that exceeds 30% of EBITDA. Uh, the deduction cannot exceed uh, the group percentage. So, a series of guidance this way. With respect to intangibles, I think that we are going to. Which is the the source of controversy and of surprising today? We are going to move into a direction in which we take the mystery out of it. We, I have one one of my blogs that I end about integrals. I says calculation of intangibles without mystery. I say it in French. sans mystère, you know, without uh, without mystery. And I think that uh, as time goes on, uh, the recognition that uh, that litigation is expensive, the outcome. Uh, the, the court's decision is uh, uh, not uh, solvable, it's not a good solution to to the problem, so I think we are going to get uh, more guidance. But unfortunately, we are in a period in which the OECD is producing a lot of nebulae, a lot of nebulous um, and misguided uh, uh, provisions. But I do believe that's like a quadratic curve, we are at uh, the uh, maximum point, of misinformation, of miseducation, and we are going to move to a point and uh, regarding the uh, intangibles that it's not such a peculiar, you know, such a mysterious mm-hmm. um, uh, account that uh, is so difficult to to track. So I, I I am very positive with respect to to finding solutions that are more tractable. Uh, as I said, with respect to limits of deduction uh, and uh, safe harbors, but also to bring intangible to a level of discourse that is more well defined, uh, without so much uh, so much uh, mystery,
0: less less subjective. Uh, another another uh, a great theme of your work. Uh, and just out of curiosity, where do you see yourself in five years? Well, I see myself working in, uh, in, in five years.
2: I see myself working for eight or ten, um, or, or or ten years. But I think that's not what uh, uh, I wish that you clarify further. What you mean by <laughs> where do you see? You know, because I see myself uh, married to the same woman. You know, having all the kids.
0: You know, so so tell me what you mean. Uh, I guess uh, where, where do you see yourself in, in those industry dynamics? Yeah, as you describe. I'm doing a lot of work today with uh,
2: what I call you know, safe harbors, uh, with uh, inbound distributors and inbound uh, uh, retailers, but you know, I see that uh, my work is progressively going towards, uh, it historically has been concentrated on, uh, on, on, on intangibles. I think it's going to be further concentrated on intangibles. And if I were to divide the, the three stages of transfer pricing, one is documentation, mm-hmm. yeah? the other one is audit defense, and the third one is litigation, and when you, you when you think of the incidence of audit defense compared to the number of documents, it's minuscule, and when you think of the incidence of litigation compared to the number of documentations, it's minuscule. It's even more minuscule. So my work has concentrated on audit defense and on on uh, on on litigation. So. My prediction that those are going to decrease over time because, as I have said, because of the use of safe harbors, whether it is acknowledged or not uh, as a practical, and because of the, the understanding that uh, intangibles are a kind of asset that under certain conditions can produce high profits, and under some other conditions do not produce high profits. You know, they produce differentiation, but they don't produce a, you know, high profit. So I see myself in um, five years uh, working, continue to work in uh, in those areas. Uh, You know, my sense is that controversy is going to, the level of controversy is going to decrease. I think taxpayers have a lot to do, as I have described before, in terms of disclosure, helping the tax authorities narrow, you know, the field, um, bringing the facts to the table, taking the mystery out of the of, of, of the game. So I, I'm, I'm very uh, optimist uh, yeah. about this field in five mm-hmm. years.
0: And in in that case, uh, that about uh, concludes our discussion on Heart of Value Intangibles uh, for today. A special thanks uh, to Mimi Song and Dr. Silva for being with us uh, for our first live show. Uh, That wasn't so bad, right, Fiona? I tend to take these things in stride, Matt. Listeners, if you have any questions about transfer pricing or about this podcast, post them on our Facebook page and we'll answer them right here on The Fiona Show. And if you learned anything at all, or just like the sound of my voice, we don't blame you, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and get the scoop on transfer pricing every week. Until next time.